happy 4th of July weekend. Yes, if you are here today, this is like one of the lowest attended Sundays of the year. So God sees you and gave you waffles. Um, Yeah, Um, if you're tuning in online, thanks for joining us. You can grab some Egos waffles out of the freezer and in the spirit of what we're doing today. Uh, No, but it's it's good to see you. Um, We uh, are in a series on the book of Acts, and we're in week 10. The series goes for about 30 weeks. And the story that we are in today um, is a wild one. And uh, like it's 4th of July weekend, the story kind of has fireworks. And I just want to jump right into it. And so we'll actually start at the end of Acts chapter 4, starting in verse 33, if you want to follow along. And we'll go through chapter 5, verse 11. It says, And God's grace was so powerfully at work in them all that there were no needy persons among them. This is how this story opens. If you remember, uh, we're coming off like a a, a four-week story about Peter healing this crippled man at the gate called Beautiful at the Temple Gates. Um, All sorts of stuff happens. They get arrested by the Sanhedrin or by the Sadducees, go in front of the Sanhedrin, get set free, go back to the early church, and and things are going well. So from time to time, those who owned land or houses sold them, brought the money from the sales, and put them at the apostles' feet. And it was distributed to anyone who had need. Joseph, a Levite from Cyprus, whom the apostles called Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, sold a field he owned and brought the money and put it at the apostles' feet. So like radical generosity is happening. The church is on the move. Uh, There's momentum. Everyone's joining in. This is like things are going really well. And then Acts chapter 5. It says, now a man named Ananias, together with his wife, Sapphira, also sold a piece of property, just like Barnabas. With his wife's full knowledge, he kept back part of the money for himself, but brought the rest and put it at the apostles' feet. Then Peter said, Ananias, how is it that Satan has so filled your heart that you have lied to the Holy Spirit and have kept for yourself some of the money you received from the land? Didn't it belong to you before it was sold? And after it was sold, wasn't the money at your disposal? What made you think of doing such a thing? You have not just lied to human beings, but to God. And when Ananias heard this, he fell down and died. Wow. And a great fear seized all who heard what had happened. Then some of the young men came forward, wrapped up his body, and carried it out and buried him. About three hours later, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. Peter asked her, tell me, is this the price that you and Ananias got for the land? Yes, she replied, that is the price. And Peter said to her, how could you conspire to test the spirit of the Lord? Listen, the feet of the men who buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out also. And at that moment, she fell down at his feet and died. Then the young men came in, finding her dead, carried her out, and buried her beside her husband. Great fear seized the whole church and all who heard about these events. Well, that's a crazy story. That's not fun. (laughs) Uh, This is a story that has, uh, for me, always, I've always struggled with. That's a story I read, and I I knew even as we're doing this series on the book of Acts, I'm like, what in the world is going on here? 
Like when you see like the, the character of God and the New Testament and the new church and the apostles and all these good things are happening. And it's almost like this just feels so out of character for what is going on here. But this story happens. This story happens and it doesn't even give a great explanation. It just says, oh, by the way, in the midst of all of these good things that are going on, this happened. It's controversial. It's painful. It's confusing. What in the world is going on here? And why has Luke placed this in the text for us? What is the Holy Spirit trying to do? Is this an inspired text? What is it teaching us about the church, about community, about God, about Scripture? And I want to just kind of look at it from some different angles today because it's actually, I, I think, a, a fascinating story. Uh, but we learn a few things. One is there's something that we learn about the Bible as we read this story, right? This, it, it's amazing the, the storytelling of Scripture um, because if you just start with Acts chapter 5, this is an isolated story. But what's going on here and why we started in Acts chapter 4 is the very thing that Ananias and Sapphira are doing is actually being done by other followers of Jesus. And, and it, it mentions that. Like, here, here's how much momentum the church had. Like, people are living uh, it, with, with such incredible generosity. They're selling their own property and bringing that to the, to the church and saying, distribute this back into the community. And, and it, it's, it's something that's happened a few times, and it points out that there's a guy named Joseph that they call Barnabas who does it. And so this guy gets put up on a pedestal. Like, we know a little bit about Barnabas. He's one of the leaders of the early church. He's going to make about seven different appearances in the book of Acts. He becomes this leader, and he's put up on this. This is a man who just did this radical, radically generous act, and he has influence. He, he, gets, he gets praised because of his generosity. And then the story turns with Ananias and Sapphira, who do the same thing. And it's almost like they want the acclamation of, Barnabas, but they don't make the same sacrifice. And so the, this story isn't, it, there's a context to it of, of what's going on here with the early church. Um, in, in scripture, you, you always read it within the context of this, this story that's going on. The second thing is Luke tells this story, and he's telling the story of, of the early church. We see so many parallels what, uh, of what happens in the Old Testament with the people of God. And in fact, when you read the story, there's this echo of this story that takes place in Joshua chapter 7, when, when God's people move into the promised land and, and all of these different things are going on. And there's, there's, a, there's a man named Achan or Achan, if you want to mispronounce it correctly, we'll just say Achan. Um, Achan, uh, he, he has resources set aside for the people of God, for the temple. He holds it to himself. And, and because of that deceit, um, there, there's just calamity that happens. And, and all of the momentum of, of the people of God all of a sudden gets halted because of this act of deceit with Achan. And, and, and as Luke is telling the story of the early church, there's this weird echo going back to the Old Testament of this time when an act of deceit interrupts the victorious movement of God and his people in history. And so even as you're reading this, you, you hear that echo in Luke but then here's another thing we learn about Scripture, and we, we get to a story like this, is that, that Scripture is brutally honest about the history of the church. Scripture doesn't hide anything. Even in things that are, that are somewhat controversial or, or hard, or, or like we read that and we're like, Ugh, I, don't, I don't really like what, what this implies, Scripture doesn't hide that from us. It leaves it in the story. 
This was something that would have been a scandal. These people, they died because of their deceit. What in the world is going on? And what Scripture has a way of doing is laying it all out. There was a controversy within the church. We're not hiding that. This is the people of God. This is what it's like to be a part of the people of God. And Scripture is brutally honest. I feel like reading Scripture and understanding how how it's legitimate is because Scripture doesn't hide things from us. Here's the thing that happened. It was devastating. It was confusing. It's part of our story. The Bible is brutally honest, and it also invites us to a life of honesty. To be a follower of Jesus, Scripture says there's an honesty here, an authenticity to our life. We don't try to cover things up when they're scandalous. We don't hide them. It's part of our story. Here's what we learn about, here's what we learn about God in this passage, right? Because when we, we, we uh, have inferred that he has smited these people, it doesn't actually say that he has smited them for this deceit, um, but it's inferred, and we, 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 you know, you could get into the Greek of fall down dead, like that, that, that word's only used for divine smiting and have that conversation, um, and then you wonder, like, what, 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 what's going on with Peter as he tells this story? Like, maybe the first one was a coincidence. He just so happens to have a heart attack. And then let's test it out on the wife. She comes in. Well, that's definitely not a coincidence. Like, they were both being deceitful. They were both, you know, lying against the Holy Spirit. Like, okay, so what's going on there? And, and there's this reminder that in the character of God, um, there's justice. And God cannot be mocked. And it it tells us this in Galatians chapter 6. It says, do not be deceived, verse 7. God cannot be mocked. A man reaps what he sows. And whoever sows to please their flesh, from the flesh will reap destruction. Whoever sows to please the Spirit, from the Spirit will reap eternal life. Let us not become weary in doing good, for at the proper time we will reap a harvest if we do not give up. Therefore, as we have opportunity, let us do good to all people, especially those who belong to the family of believers. God will not be mocked. And, and contrary to, I think, a lot of uh, assumptions about the Old Testament with like the justice of God and the wrath of God, God actually is quite patient with people. Like God lets people get away with things for quite some time. And you see this in Scripture, people that are, have, have done things that are unjust, they've done things that have oppressed others, they've done things that are just um, evil. And we actually see God letting people get away with things for quite some time. But here in the story, you would like him to be a little bit more patient with Ananias and Sapphira, right? Like, you would, you would expect that, that God would, you know, let them come and repent. And there's people that do a lot worse things than this, and they don't get, you know, they don't end up dead. And here's something I've also learned when it comes to God, is that he knows our hearts better than anybody. He knows our hearts, he knows our motives, he knows what's going on. And in this story, for whatever reason, these people end up dead with their deceit. And I have found that it's helpful in passages like this, that this God who throughout Scripture we find is slow to anger, abounding in love, this God who is also just, this God that is merciful, this God that searches our hearts, when I come to passages like this, I'm going to give God the benefit of the doubt. When I come to passages like this in Scripture, and I'm like, I don't really understand it, like, this looks different than how he operates in other ways. But whatever happens here, this, this is part of this story. And there's a point here that's being driven home. 
And I'm going to give God the benefit of the doubt in stories just because they're hard and confusing to me. I think the easy thing is to, to be angry or, or to disconnect from this. And yet here's this God who searches people's hearts. I'm given the benefit of the doubt in a story like this. And here's what we learn about the church. So we learn a little bit about Scripture, a little bit about God. Here's what we learn about the church. Even in the best days, even in the most momentous time, there's a mixture of bad things. Because church is messy. Even in the first century, church is messy. It's hard. If you've belonged to a church longer than six months, you've experienced that. Because we're, church is made up of people. Church is messy. It's difficult. But also I think what this tells us is this story is a warning. It's a warning of the awfulness of deceit within a community. Like deceit is, is something that just rips relationships apart. Deceit is something that rips communities apart. There's an, there's an awfulness to deceit and lying. And, and here there's this warning about it. it this deceit, if it destroys relationships in community and it destroys lives, um, you, you, you see a picture of this here, people who reap what they sow. Deceit is something that is devastating for a church community, for families, for marriages, for friendships. And like you can come back from betrayal, you can come back from sinning against each other. The thing about deceit, what it does, is it, de- it destroys trust within a relationship. And so if you've been deceived, if you've been lied to, you, like you can repair that relationship. Like that, can re- that relationship can have a future, but you know if, you, if you've ever had that happen, that relationship's never quite the same. It can have a future, but once trust has been broken, trust is so fragile that it could have a future, but you know there's, there's something that's just different about it. I mean, deceit just destroys relationships. It's something that's very serious. And here in this text, there's huge ramifications for deceit. A couple different ways that uh, deceit plays out. And a lot of this, uh, there, there's many ways deceit plays out. Here's four things I've, in my life I've, I've seen. Um, the first is, is lying. Just flat out what we say, how we say. Part of deceit is um, saying something that's, that's not true. Uh, with our, our children, um, you know, our youngest is five. Like each one of them, like you, you learn a lot about like truth telling and lying at, at a very early age and, and seeing that play out with they get in trouble and how are they going to respond to it and when you're five, you know, you're kind of like testing the waters and trying to get away with whatever you can get away with. And, there, and there's learning. And, and yet there's something about that that can, kind of continues your whole life, even as an adult. Like saying little white lies or saying something that's just not honest, seeing what you can get away with plays out sometimes unintentionally. Uh, there's a, uh, a psychologist at University of Texas that wrote um, a book about why people lie. Here's a list of reasons. Uh, One is to avoid punishment. One is to protect oneself from harm. One is to obtain a reward for oneself, to protect or help another person, to win admiration from others, to get out of an awkward or embarrassing social situation, to maintain privacy, to exercise power over others, to fulfill expectations, to have fun. Lying, just to have fun. 
Uh, and what's interesting about Ananias is he doesn't have to lie. Like, this invitation to generosity isn't forced upon him. And yet something's going on here where he wants the acclaim of Barnabas without the sacrifice. He wants the, he wa- he wants the influence. He wants people to look at him and to see him. There's something with his image here. And he lies. He doesn't give everything when he sells the field. Uh, and not only does he lie, he, he lies in a spiritual way. And, and, I, and like when we see like the Jesus, when he comes after people, it's not because of their sin. Like oftentimes what he, he goes after is the religious establishment who should know better and who are trying to prop up a certain image, acting as spiritual people, living as hypocrites. We see him come down on them. But the lie isn't just a lie, it's this lie against the Holy Spirit because they're trying to project this spiritual life that doesn't meet how they're living. N.T. Wright, commentating on this, talks about what lies do in community. He says, the key thing in the story was the lie. The real deep-level problem about lying is that it misuses or abuses the highest faculty we possess, the gift of expressing in clear speech the reality of who we are, what we think, and how we feel. It is, as it were, the opposite of the gift of tongues. Instead of allowing God's spirit to have free reign through our faculties so that we praise God in words or sounds which enable us to stand, however briefly, at the intersection of heaven and earth, we tell lies. When we tell lies, we not only hold on, uh, we not only hold Uh, heaven and earth apart, but we twist earth itself so that it serves our own interests. Lying is ultimately a way, the way we want it to be. At that level, it is a way of saying that we don't trust God, the creator, to look after his world and sort it out in his own time and way. And it is precisely the claim of the early church that God, the creator, has acted in Jesus Christ to sort out the the world out and set it right. Those who make that claim and live by that claim must expect to be judged by that claim. I find that interesting. Like when you think of the book of Acts, you have like, you know, the gift of tongues that are given and there's all all sorts of uh, ways that you could, we could talk about that. But this idea that, that heaven and earth meet in this language and lies, it's almost like the opposite of that. It's, it's as where like heaven and earth or hell and earth meet or earth is twisted when we're lying. Like we're trying to control a situation, we're trying to control a world that, that we don't like. And so we, we don't tell the truth. Lying, but what we talk. Second way that we lie is deception of others. And this is, this is how we live. Because lying's not always what we say. There's actually the way that we, we can live in life together. We live a life that's not true. Um, I, I've noticed uh, in my life, I'm a pastor's kid. And so I've kind of like had this spotlight on me my whole life. And, uh, you know, like the story with PKs is they're, they're usually rebellious. And so like I, I'm a people pleaser. I'm worried about what people think. I never had like this streak of rebellion outwardly. Um, but for me, like everybody rebels. We're all broken. We all rebel in our different ways. And for me, rebellion was always internally. 
Like, I, I, I can go real dark. I can go real negative. I can get real depressed. Um, not a lot of people see that because I can, I can deceive people. Why I got it all together. I'm happy. I never doubt. Like, things are great. And yet there's a darkness that is inside. Um, I, I don't share it with a lot of people, but Marcy gets to feel that, you know. Like, if you get to know me, you get to feel the darkness, the negativity. Um, because we, we all have ways that we rebel. But deception is that we, we don't live the way that we say that we're living. We don't, it doesn't match up. And, and with Ananias, we see that, uh, the way that he's holding on to something. He's, he's trying to put out this image that he's super generous. We see that he's not. We deceive others in how we live. One of the best uh, books I've read the last couple of years is a book called Living into Community by an author named Christine Pohl. She talks a lot about congregations. So as a pastor, I'm like always reading, like, how do we make the congregation healthy? How do we have people in healthy relationships? How do we have harmony? All that. And it's interesting as she talks about church communities that, that live uh, in, in ways that just resonate with each other. Um, she says, we, what we don't talk about is, is hype and flash and production, being cool. What makes churches grow and thrive and be healthy are things that are almost intangible, and how we relate to each other. There's gratitude, churches that are just grateful and not entitled. People that live in community with gratitude, it just does something, it resonates through a community when they're not grumbling about the way they want things to be or when they, like gratitude is a sense of, of just seeing all of life as grace. Gratitude and then keeping promises. To be in relationship with others is, is in a sense to be in, in covenant with each other, to keep promises, to follow through with things, allows for church communities to thrive. And then living truthfully, to live truthfully with each other. Because what truth does is it builds trust. To live truthfully, to be authentic. authentic authenticity something is that it, it's like completely countercultural right now. But what a church can do is live authentically, live our lives together truthfully so that we know each other, so that we accept each other, so that we can trust each other when things aren't good in life. And it's hard to live truthfully. She goes on to say this. In this story, they had chosen deception. Deception and lying moved directly into the heart of the community life. There may have been additional issues at work in this event, but the central part of the story is about the extraordinary danger of deception within a community. Deception, lying, half-truths, endanger communities and undermine our best efforts. They have from the beginning. Large and small, they break communities apart, distort our relationship with God, and separate us from one another. There's lying, and then there's deception of others. Then there's another type of deceit, and it's self-deception. So if lying is what we say and deception is how we live, self-deception is how we think. Self-deception, the action or practice of allowing oneself to believe that a false or unvalidated feeling, idea, or situation is true. And we see this too. And I, and I, I often can do this because I, I, I like my, my natural bent is to like cynicism about myself, real low self-esteem, um, and I, and I feel like this is where Satan gets in and just has us believe lies about ourselves and about situations. Um, we, 
we tend to have a, a, oftentimes either a really low and, and inaccurate view of ourself or a too high view of ourself. And so then it's like the, the opposite of, of the, having the negative view of ourself is we think too highly and we think all of our success is because of you know, our own gifting and all of our faults are everyone else's you know, issues and not, our, not ourselves. Self-deception flourishes when we're not grounded in authentic community. The way that we, we view ourselves. And then finally, this is something that, that goes back kind of deceiving others, but Im- image management, what we project, image management. And I'm not talking about projection, which I know I do, which is, is living in deceit. Like projection, how that works is it's kind of like, you know, I might, I might not like a person. And so what I do is if, if, I, if I don't like a person and I, I'm kind of talking with Marcy about it, like I project, I get ahead of it. I'm like, that person, I just feel like that person doesn't like me. You know, and, and like that's projection. It's like you're accusing someone else of what you're guilty of. And, and so that's part of this like image management. But really what I'm talking about is image management is like photoshopping our lives. Like we, we live in a culture where it, we want to look like we have it all together. And like, that's a good thing. Like we should, you know, be committed to excellence and all that. But trying to control like what we present to other people. And, and, and so like what, the hard thing is like you, if you're, especially if you, you know you're struggling, you're in touch with your brokenness. Like you, you're around people that you feel like they have it all together. And it, it's like, how do, you, how do you get help? How do you admit like, I've got a problem if everyone's just trying to manage their own images? And there's a lack of authenticity there too. I feel like, you know, social media only like magnifies this because we just give everyone else our highlight reel. If you want to get really depressed, you know, sit in your hot house right now and just watch everyone on vacation, right? Like you're just like, what am I doing here? Like why am I not at the beach or a lake? But we Photoshop our lives. There's this image management of what we project. So we lie, we deceive others, there's self-deception, image management, all of these things I find myself doing, and that destroys community, destroys our relationships with each other and with God. What Jesus does, what the early church was called to, was to live a life of authenticity, to be real, to live authentically with each other. A couple of uh, definitions of authenticity I found interesting. One is, you know, it, it's true, being true to one's own personality, spirit, character. That's, you know, one of the things we think of. But also, um, to be authentic is to be of undisputed origin. Like when you find something that's authentic and you know it's the real thing. Um, also, conforming to an original so as to reproduce the essential features. To be authentic, to be human, means that we are created in the image of God. We bear the image of God. Like the original. Like we, we are people that bear the image of God and are so loved by God that he sends Jesus into the world, dies for us, offers us restoration, salvation, redemption. Christ loves us so much because we are created in the image of God. And to be authentic is to say, not only are we created in the image of God, we bear the image of God, which means we're Christ-like in all that we do. Image bearers who reflect our creator. To live authentic lives is what Jesus invites us to. So here's something that the church has done historically. And when you hear it, 
it'll probably make you itchy. But it's this idea of confession, to confess to one another. Like that, that confession might come with baggage because confession means, oh, this is about sin management, I'm getting this thing out, and it's judging. But what confession is, is confession is owning up to reality. Confession is being grounded in reality to say, here are the things where I'm broken, here are the things where I need help. And it has to be within the context of a loving, authentic community that we're able to do that. We're able to get help. And what we would say is that God loves us exactly as we are, and he loves us way too much to just leave us as we are, because we're all broken, and Christ is inviting us into a life that is eternal. Confession has a way of doing that, to come and to confess. So there's a couple of scriptures I want to walk us through when it comes to living authentically, and then we're going to move to a time of communion today. But two passages that help us with confession and authentic lives. The first is this Psalm 86. This is a prayer. It says, Teach me your way, O Lord, that I may walk in your truth. Give me an undivided heart to revere your name. I give thanks to you, O Lord my God, with my whole heart, and I will glorify your name forever. For great is your steadfast love toward me. You have delivered my soul from the depths of Sheol. Walk in truth, in undivided heart. Teach me your way, O Lord. And the second is this. The second is a letter that was written from the Apostle Paul to the church. Um, and it, we, we find it here in Colossians chapter 3. And just to listen to these words as Paul is instructing these people of how to live in community with each other and with God. He says this, Since then you have been raised with Christ. Set your heart Set your hearts on things above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above, not on earthly things. For you died, and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will also appear with him in glory. And put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature— sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil, desires, greed, which is idolatry. Because of these, the wrath of God is coming. You used to walk in these, anger and rage and malice and slander and filthy language from your lips. Or you, you must rid yourself of such things. Do not lie to each other, since you have taken off your old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in the knowledge of, in the image of its creator. Here there is no Gentile or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave nor free, but Christ is all and is in all. Therefore is God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved. Clothe yourselves with compassion and kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Bear with each other and forgive one another if any of you has a grievance against someone. Forgive as the Lord forgave you. And over all these virtues put on love, which binds them together in perfect unity. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, since as members of one body you were called to peace. And be thankful. Let the message of Christ dwell among you richly, as you teach and admonish one another with all wisdom, through psalms, hymns, and songs from the Spirit. Singing to the God with gratitude in your hearts. Singing to God with gratitude in your hearts. Whatever you do, whether it is word or deed, do it all in the name of Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him.
Jesus invites us to live authentically in community together without deceit. Deceit is something that just rips through a community. And today as we close in communion, um, we want to just create some space. Maybe it's a time for you of confession with God. Maybe it's confession with one another. Maybe you need to talk to a friend. Maybe it's a spouse. Um, as we come to this communion table to say we want to be a place of trust, a place of truth, living authentically in life with each other. Um, today as we go to communion, we've got some elements passed out around the room. We've got two tables in the back, two up front. Um, if you're a follower of Jesus, we invite you to the table today. What this communion represents is that this whole life that we're living with, with all of our flaws and with all of our brokenness, it's not necessarily about us striving to please God, but it's about what God has done for us, God who is good and righteous, who has made a way for a relationship with us. Today we remember that through the action of the cross where the, the body of God is broken open, the action of the cross where the blood of, of God is shed, and from that, from that breaking open of the, of the body, the pouring out of the blood, we find life that is eternal, that Christ has made a way because of who he is and his love for us. We remember that today, and we proclaim it. And then we live it as well, as an authentic group of people following Jesus. Um, when you're ready, you can move across the room and get uh, communion and just take it uh, yourself. When you're ready, spend some time in prayer and reflection, and we'll close with a song. Let's pray. Lord, we're so grateful for your word. Lord, we're grateful for uh, your love for us. And even in passages like this, Lord, that are confusing and, and hard to understand, um, we're reminded of how uh, deceit can just destroy lives. And we're reminded of how uh, you are the giver of life. You invite us into a life to the fullness here and now and eternally. And Lord, as your body, as your hands and your feet, as a bunch of people who are living in community together, we ask that you would uh, keep us from being deceitful. That we'd be honest. And that this would be a place that can receive um, honest people and all of our brokenness and all the ways that we get things wrong and all the ways that we need help, Lord, that this would be an environment of grace, of forgiveness, of mercy. As we come to the table today, Lord, and take these elements, we are reminded of your great love for us. Lord, I ask that we would be people that would be known by that kind of love. So we give you this time. We ask that you would speak to our soul, that you would work in us right now. It's in your name we pray.